0: Let's pray together. Our Father, we indeed thank you for your great faithfulness that you have shown to us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're grateful that we can gather and rejoice in the hope that is ours in Christ even now this morning. Fathers, we turn to your word. We ask that by your spirit you would help us to understand your word, that it would be of encouragement to us for your glory. And namesake. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to begin by reading for you a quote from a poem. This is a quote from a poem. Listen to this now. I have forgotten what happiness is. I have forgotten what happiness is. Probably not what you expected me to quote. No red roses and violets are blue, but I have forgotten what happiness is. Have you ever had a time in your life where you may have thought or said something similar to that? I've forgotten what happiness is. My guess is that many of us would raise our hands and say, yeah, I have. Perhaps you've experienced a trial or a tragedy in your own life or suffering of some kind which has led you to believe that you can't even remember or recall a time where you knew happiness. Some, that may be something currently happening even right now in your life. That it seems that all hope is lost and you've forgotten what happiness is. Well, suffering is all around us no matter where we look. We don't have to look long or far to be met face to face with the reality of suffering, tragedy, trials in our own life. It's because we live in a fallen, broken, sin-cursed world that we see suffering all around us. And we can expect suffering in this life. I think sometimes we ask the question, will I suffer? What will it be like? Will I have to? Is that coming someday? But maybe the question we ought to ask is, when I suffer, or when I face tragedy, when I have trials, What will my response be? Or to whom will I look? Or to what will I turn in the midst of that suffering? Well, that quote I read a moment ago is a quote by a poet who is in the depths of despair. Tremendous amounts of suffering in his own life. Suffering to the degree that some of us may never even face. It's real, genuine, honest suffering the poet is the prophet jeremiah and the poem is found in the book of lamentations and so i'll invite you this morning to turn with me to the book of lamentations if you open your bibles and find isaiah or jeremiah you have got a good chance in landing in one of those in the middle it goes isaiah jeremiah then lamentations if you hit ezekiel you've gone too far go back just one or I noticed in the first hour, most people were looking at me with their phone saying, found it, got it. <laughs> but as you're turning to Lamentations, you may be thinking what a lot of people have responded to me when they said, what are you going to be preaching on? I say, Lamentations. And they've all, almost every one of them said, huh. All right. You sure? <laughs> yes, I am sure. But I get that. I get it. Uh, Lamentations is not probably your favorite go-to book of the Bible. Um, as one writer said, it's probably because it deals with issues and realities that we naturally want to distance ourselves from. Because Lamentations is it is dark, it is filled with pain and suffering, destruction, agony, and tragedy. Sometimes, when you read through Lamentations, you can be left you know, scratching your head. It's kind of confusing. You might even be left unsettled. At times, uncomfortable as you read through Lamentations. It might be helpful just to get a little background on what's happening, where we're at in the book of Lamentations and with the people of Israel. Um, so briefly, the Cliff Notes version for you, a refresher. The people of Israel were in bondage and slavery in Egypt. God delivered his people. From Egypt and at the base of Mount Sinai, he gives them his good law, his good and perfect, righteous, holy law. And he says to them, obey these commands and you will have blessing. You will be blessed. Disobey and you will be cursed. There will be judgment. There will be punishment for breaking these laws. And if you know the story that is the roller coaster ride of Israel through the Old Testament, you know That they fail. God even told them, you're going to fail. Because they stood there and said, absolutely sign us up. We're going to do it. And he said, no, you'll fail. And so God is patient with them for many, many years. And eventually, judgment comes. God pours out his wrath on the people of Israel for the sins they have committed. For transgressing, for breaking his law. And now enter the book of Lamentations. You may remember about a month ago, Pastor Mike Holloway preached from the book of Isaiah about this similar type of thing. Lamentations is addressing what happened after the destruction of Israel, after Jerusalem is destroyed and leveled. And the prophet Jeremiah, he's writing Lamentations, these five poems, as an opportunity to encourage and help the people through this tragedy, this suffering in their life. Oftentimes when we face tragedy and trials suffering pain we want to set it over here and move aside or we want to go around it just get past it but really we have to go through it and this is a way of maybe even bringing clarity to the situation as the Israelites as Jeremiah faced this in their own life and even for us as we face suffering and tragedy in our own life I'll remind you this is poetry and so there's Poetic language in Lamentations, there are metaphors and images used. Uh, interesting side note, each of these books except for the, or chapters, excuse me, except for the fifth one are acrostics. Meaning each line of the poem begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so you have kind of the A to Z, if you will, of suffering, a complete treatment of suffering. But this morning, we're going to be looking at Lamentations chapter 3, the first 24 verses. And as I've looked through Lamentations and read through it and considered even this passage, uh, I've noticed two striking contrasts. That we'll see in Lamentations. Two striking contrasts. And really they're kind of themes that emerge from the book of Lamentations. From the passage here. The first one we'll see from the 24 verses we're going to be looking at. And the second striking contrast is kind of a look at Lamentations as a whole. And what's been going on in their life. So two striking contrasts as we look at Lamentations. The first is the contrast of despair and hope despair, and hope. And the second contrast is judgment and salvation. Judgment and salvation. Now, Lamentations is exactly what it says it is. It's a lament. Fair warning. Uh, and as we look at it, you'll notice that it is a lament in which you're laying your suffering or your trials before God. So you're acknowledging what's going on. You're explaining. You're talking about what is happening in this tragedy, in this trial. Uh, so that's what we're going to see a lot of in these first 18 verses. Uh, it is dark, but there's a striking contrast of hope to come. So hang in there. Let's begin with the first striking contrast, despair and hope. And we begin with despair, starting in verse 1. Look with me at Lamentations chapter 3, verse 1. We read, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. Now immediately here we're introduced to the poet. It doesn't give us his name, uh, but tradition has it that it's the prophet Jeremiah writing and in the other chapters in lamentations it's not written from a personal point of view. It's written from uh, like Jeremiah is on the hillside looking over the city of Jerusalem as it's been destroyed and observing their suffering and what they're going through. Here this is first-hand account of the suffering that he has experienced alongside of the people of Israel and Jerusalem. And here he says this suffering is something that he's seen. It's been going on. It's continuing to go on. And we don't have an indication or information really in this verse or this chapter until later at what exactly this suffering is and what's causing it. But if we look at other places in Lamentations, even just the verse right before chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 2, right at that last verse, verse 22, it says that it's It says on the day of the anger of the Lord. So this is God's wrath, His anger, His judgment, His punishment coming to the people of Israel. This is the affliction that He's under, the wrath that He is under. And He then is going to unfold his lament in the following verses. And as I mentioned, this is lament. It's filled with poetic language. And so we'll see some metaphors, some pictures for this suffering. The first picture is of darkness. Look at verse 2. Continuing on, verse 2, it says, "...he has driven and brought me into darkness without any light." Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago these verses, we see this theme of darkness. And you notice he says, in verse 2, there's this absence of light. There is no light. And so often we associate darkness with pain, with suffering. And light, oftentimes we see in Scripture, is associated with life, with blessing, with God's provision for his people. And he's saying there is no light. It's even in the Psalms that we read this morning, Psalm 38, talking about the absence of light and suffering. In Psalm 88 and Psalm 143, we see that darkness is used to describe even those who are dead. So death, destruction, darkness. You might even notice, too, there are things here that we frequently associate with comfort. And back in verse 1, there was the rod of his wrath. Then here in verse 2, being driven and brought into darkness without any light. Makes me think of Psalm 23, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And He makes me lie down in green pastures and, lie, and leads me beside still waters. However, here, there is suffering being brought, affliction, wrath. And the suffering is so great, it's continuing day after day, all the time, never ending in verse 3. And it's so great in the outward things that are being endured, famine and the destruction, is causing even pain and weakness in his own body, in his own life. In verse 4, he's made my flesh and my skin waste away. He's broken my bones. Then as he's noticing and seeing that the city's been laid to waste, it's gone. It is no more. In verse 6, he says, I'm like that as I'm seeing there is no more city. I, I seem to be on the brink of death myself. Jeremiah and the people of Israel Jerusalem are suffering in darkness. There's an absence of light. Then it continues even further from there. In verse five again, in seven through nine, it's this imagery of being walled in or stuck or trapped in this darkness, in this suffering. Look at verse five. He said, he has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. You have that picture there of when their enemies came to destroy the city, being surrounded by them. But then what's more, verse 7, he has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. Notice everything in these verses. It's about getting in the way, stopping Jeremiah and the people from escaping this darkness, this suffering, this tragedy. They cannot escape it. They're walled in, chained, thinking of being imprisoned. Jeremiah certainly experienced things like this, even during this time. Imprisoned, he was even thrown into a cistern at one point left in darkness, walled in, trapped. These stones that were stacked up and blocked his way were meant to be a block in the path of escape. These crooked paths, if you're going to escape, the crooked would not be the easy way, but the straight path. And notice in verse 8, though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. It's as if this darkness, these walls around all these things blocking are so thick and so vast that his, his calls for help can't even be heard. It even reminds me of the Psalms, Psalm 13, when say, It seems as though, God, you have forgotten me. You're hiding your face from me. It continues on from there. I told you this is dark. Now from being in darkness to being walled in and trapped and stuck with no escape, now it's in verses 10 through 13 as if he's being hunted. Look at verse 10. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrow's. Of his quiver. really seems to ratchet up the intensity. Of God's wrath and judgment. On the people here for their sins. Imagery of God as a bear and a lion. These are usually images that would be reserved for enemies. Or God's enemies. Not God himself. And yet God even says in. Book of Hosea and Amos. When he's. Talking about the sinfulness of the people and the judgment that is coming, he even likens himself to a bear, a lion. And it's as if Jeremiah is saying, I'm stuck, I'm trapped in this darkness, I can't escape, I'm walled in no matter what I do. And by the way, if I do escape, the end is going to be the same. Destruction. I'll be torn to pieces, I'll be hunted, I'll be left desolate. Desolate. And then the imagery changes to that of an archer who takes his bow and aims and shoots his arrows into the kidneys of Jeremiah and the people. When we read kidneys, it doesn't really jive with us, but it's, think heart. The seat of the emotions, the person driving arrows into the heart. He's hunted, he's mauled, he's, he's crushed, he's helpless. There's no escape from this darkness. And there's more. In verse 14, now he's being mocked. For, in verse 14, I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. Now here he's being mocked, no doubt, by the enemies who have come to besiege the city and lead those who have survived into exile. But here also in view is... Even his own people, mocking, taunting him. Perhaps for his continued faith, the resolve, and even crying out for help in verse 8. This faith that you seem to be trying out. But we're stuck in this darkness. What are you doing? We're trapped. There is no hope. And then finally... He comes to his very end. He's without hope, in complete and utter despair in verses 15 through 18. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. And so I say, my endurance has perished. And so has my hope from the Lord. After using imagery of food in 15 and 16, where you'd have just little bits of the bitter herbs and the wormwood, the sap from the wormwood, little bits would be used. But here he's saying, I'm filled with it. It's more than I can handle, like Psalm 38 we read this morning. It's more than I can take. It's ever before me. It's constant. I'm filled with this. And it uses imagery of your teeth grinding on gravel. Maybe imagery of just looking for food, scraping up scraps from the ground and dirt and pebbles and gravel being mixed in. Or even the image of being walked over and your face down, being trampled over in destruction and defeat. Your face down. Maybe think of eat dirt. And then he's he's reached his end in verse seventeen. My soul is bereft of peace. I have no peace, no comfort. I would long for that, but I, it's gone. I've forgotten what happiness is. My my memories of even the past or happiness, what that would be to have provision. It's it's gone. He's only left with those memories. And then in verse eighteen. He says, so I say, my endurance, my strength, it's perished, it's gone. I can't go any further. And so has my hope from the Lord. His hope is gone. He's complete and utter despair, darkness, trapped, hunted, mocked, without hope. If you notice, Though as most laments in scripture do, there's kind of a shift that begins to take place. Notice up until this point, he has yet to mention God by name. Throughout the first 17 verses, it's he, 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 over and over again, never mentioning God by name as if there's a distance and feeling uh, abandoned or alone as though God has forgotten him. But now at the deepest, darkest moments where he says, there is no hope, I cannot continue, my strength has failed, he mentions the Lord because he he can't escape the thought of God. He mentions him. And so now... There's a shift that begins to take place. Finally, a contrast with this despair, with this darkness, with this pain, this suffering and agony. Now we see a contrast of hope. And it begins even with that mention of the Lord in verse 18. You see a little bit of the shift happening as we do in most laments in verses 19 through 21. He says in verse 19, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. He's crying out to God in this shift from utter despair and crying out, knowing that God is the one bringing this judgment, this wrath, this suffering. And God is the only one who can solve this problem. God is the only one who can save. And so he cries out saying, look, God, see me, notice me. Don't forget me as the psalmists frequently cry. Don't hide your face from me. Please, God, hear my cry. And it's a request looking for action to be done. And then he says in verse 20, My soul continually remembers it. I see it, I remember it. It's ever before me. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But, and there comes the shift, right? That word we see a lot of times in Scripture where there's a transition happening. But, this I call to mind. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. My question is, what happened? What happened? From verse 18, where it is the end of everything, all hope is lost, there's no escape from it, and now we're in 21, and I have hope. What happened? Well, nothing happened. Nothing changed about his circumstance. We didn't fast forward years and years and years to the restoration of the people, to them being saved from their enemies. Everything is just as it was in verse 18. Here in verse 21, it's the same. But now he has hope. What's changed is something inside of Jeremiah, something he's encouraging even the people with, something that changes this despair without hope to now hope, and we'll see joy and gladness. And he's going to line out what it is that brings him that hope. He's already mentioned God by name in verse 18, and now he's going to highlight the hope that is his, the hope that is there for the people and the hope that is ours in God and who he is. It's his very name we will see. It's who God is, his character, his nature. It's everything about God and who he is that brings him hope here. And he lines that out for us in verses 22 through 24. Verses, I'm sure you know well, we sang them earlier this morning. At verse twenty-two, we see this great contrast of hope: the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases; His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is Your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, and therefore. I will hope in him. After mentioning God by name in verse 18, he now begins to think on that name. He uses the name, the Lord, Yahweh, this covenant name, name of God's relationship with his people. He begins to think on these things. Means I've called this to mind and therefore I have hope. It's God. And he says, the steadfast love of the Lord, that steadfast love. We see that throughout the Old Testament, highlighting this covenant love God has for his people. Sometimes it's translated loving kindness or his constant love. I love the way R.C. Sproul talks about it, calls it his loyal love. It's his love for his children, for his people, You think of Israel in this situation. They're being judged under condemnation for sins. And yet, here, hope is found as Jeremiah remembers God and who he is and his steadfast love. His loyal love for his people. You think we're Jeremiah elsewhere. In Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 22 says, And you shall be my people and I will be your God promises to his people. He begins to think about these things. In fact, some of you may have a note at the bottom uh, of your Bible after this verse with a translation from the older translations. It says, Because of the steadfast love of the Lord, we are not cut off. Because of God and who He is and His loyal love, His covenant love, His constant love for His people, I can stand here in the midst of this suffering, even suffering because of sin, and I can stand here and say the steadfast love is evident of the Lord. Why? Because I'm still here. He has not completely destroyed people, all the people of Israel and Jerusalem. They're still here. Sometimes that's true for us, isn't it? In the midst of suffering and trial and tragedy. You know, somebody, how's it going? Well, I'm still here. Still have opportunity even to trust God and His steadfast love in the middle of trial. And He continues and says, His mercies, they never come to an end. Hear His mercies talking about compassion. Again, God's love, His compassion for His people, for His children. Think of Psalm 103, verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. That's the kind of love and compassion that's in view here, that of a parent for their child. And notice, this steadfast love this compassion, it never ends, he says. It never ceases. Why? Because it lies in the very character and nature of who God is. The eternal God, who has steadfast love and mercy for His people. And then he says, and these mercies, this steadfast love, it says they are new every morning. Not as though these things never existed, not as though these things have never been experienced, but they're new and afresh. Every day. And time and time again, God proves himself faithful and good and gracious and kind to us. And we know that ultimately, these promises, this steadfast love, these mercies of God, they ultimately find their fullness. They ultimately come to fruition in Christ. Where he redeems the people for his own possession those whom he loves and will continue day in and day out to be faithful to his promises. And then in verse 24, he finishes this section by talking about the Lord as his portion. You think about him seeing the destruction that's happened, the city being laid to waste, nothing but heaps of ashes. And when they were brought into the land, Israel would have... Allotted inheritance or portions of the land to people and tribes. And here he says, it's all gone. There is none, but that's okay. Because my portion, my inheritance, what I need is the Lord. He is my portion. And therefore I will hope in Him. Notice he's not hoping in things himself, other people. Hope and hope, as Pastor Pat likes to say. No, he hopes in God. Hopes in God and who he is. A steadfast, gracious, and merciful, faithful God who loves his people. Then he can't contain himself any longer. You notice in verse 23 we skipped over, but he couldn't contain himself any longer. And he moves straight into Praise. He says, great is your faithfulness. You're true, you're trustworthy, and I can't contain it any longer. Great is your faithfulness. And sometimes that's true for us. You may have heard before, his theology leads to doxology. As he considers God and who he is, his greatness, his vastness, the greatness of his love, his mercy. He says, great is your faithfulness, O God. It's God and His character. It's who He is. And it never ends. You can count on it, even in the midst of such a tragedy as this, utter destruction and despair because of judgment for sin. You'll notice this may sound like very familiar words and like a passage you may have known from Exodus When he's talking about who God is, and in Exodus chapter 34, where God proclaims his name to Moses, when Moses wants to see God, who are you, God? And God proclaims his name to Moses in Exodus 34, he says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So from the poet's suffering, from Jeremiah's suffering, from the suffering of the people, as one writer says, comes important truths about the nature of God, things that we can cling to and hold on to in the midst of trial and tragedy. Because we know that these promises, that he's looking to God to be a promise keeper, we know that they ultimately find their yes and amen in Christ who has suffered for us. And so when hope seems lost when we face that suffering, what is it we turn to? Where do we look? We look to ourselves or things around us or things of this world or we turn to God and who He is and what He's done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that moves us into a second striking contrast that we see in Lamentations, really in Scripture as a whole, uh, not particularly in verses here in our text but really the theme of what we're seeing here in these verses, and that is the contrast of judgment and salvation. Judgment and salvation. You think back to the beginning of this chapter when Jeremiah is saying he's seen affliction, he's under this wrath, and we think about the Destruction that has come to the people of Israel. We remember why this is happening. It's happening because of sin. And that's not ignored in the book of Lamentations. You see it in chapter 1. It's in verse 5 of chapter 1, verse 8, verse 14, verse 18, verse 22. It's all throughout the book of Lamentations. They acknowledge it. In fact, Jeremiah acknowledges it in verse 39 of chapter 3. Why should a living man complain a man about the punishment of his sins? They acknowledge and understand this is because of sin. It's sin and its consequences that brings this judgment to the people of Israel here. If you go back to Exodus 34, I stopped just short of this part, but it says he's forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. You see, God is just. He is righteous. He is holy. And his commands are good and holy and righteous. And he requires a perfect obedience of those commands. And for those who are transgressors of God's law, breaking God's law, because God is just and always does what is right, it is necessary then that there is judgment for sin, punishment for sin. One writer says justice requires the punishment of the transgressor. Back of the law stands God, and therefore it may also be said that punishment aims at the vindication of the righteousness and holiness of the great lawgiver. God is righteous and holy, and he must punish sin. And so as we see this punishment of the sin of the people of Israel in the Old Testament, here in Lamentations, it's a preview, if you will, of ultimate judgment, final judgment that is coming for those who are not trusting in the perfect work of Christ the work of Christ alone for salvation. If you think back to the base of the mountain where the people said, yeah, we're going to do all these things, we're going to obey God, we're going to obey His commands, and God says, if you fail, there will be curses, judgment, punishment. This is true for us as well. We are required to keep God's law personally, perfectly, perpetually, all the time, never failing And should we fail, we're under the curse of the law. Galatians chapter 3 says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. We know what we deserve for our sin. The Wages of sin is death. Again, heavy stuff, but there's contrast. There's contrast, and the contrast of judgment is salvation. And you see, that's what is being clinged to by Jeremiah, and he's encouraging the people of Israel to cling to this salvation that is promised by God. And in verses 22 through 24, again, he's talking about this steadfast love, this mercy, this gracious gift of God that finds its fullness in Christ. He's the substance of it. And this curse that we are under, Christ, becomes a curse for us. Continuing on in Galatians 3 verses 13 and 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. You see these promises coming to fruition through Christ to be a blessing to all nations through Christ, the perfect law keeper, the one who would come in likeness of mankind, flesh and blood, who would suffer for us. Perfect lawkeeper bearing the weight of our sin, bearing the weight of God's wrath and judgment for sin. Paul writes, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He absorbs and satisfies God's wrath for us on the cross. Think of these things, and you're left to be in awe of God's goodness his grace to us his mercy his steadfast love we're so thankful for the work of christ our savior the magnitude of his mercy the god in, in want of nothing in need of nothing would graciously give us life through his son the lord jesus christ because of what he's done for us through his life death and resurrection that brings hope To us. Something we can hold on to and cling to even in the midst of suffering and trial. There is hope. It's in God. It's in who he is. It's in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what he has done for us. There's nothing that could separate us, Romans 8 talks about, from the love of God for us, this loyal love he has for us, this steadfast love for us, because it never ceases. It never ends. Hold on to that. Every day when we wake up, we have God who we can trust in and who He is and what He's done through the Lord Jesus Christ. Opportunities for God's grace, His faithfulness, His mercy to be proven time and time again. Striking contrasts, despair and hope, judgment and salvation. We don't want to ignore these things. We want to acknowledge that, yes, there is suffering in this life, but we have hope, lasting hope because of our resurrected Savior. Yes, judgment is due for those who are not trusting in Christ, but we have hope, we have salvation, and it is found through Christ and Him alone. Cling to these things in your life. Maybe one final thing as we close, and even thinking towards celebrating the Lord's Supper here in a moment. If you think back to this first verse of chapter 3 in Lamentations, where it says, this is Jeremiah writing, I am the man who has seen affliction. Who does that make you think of? Who is the man who can ultimately say these things of the suffering he has endured and gone through? For sin, sins he did not commit. But for our sin, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the man who has seen affliction. First Peter chapter two. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This experience we've seen of the suffering, Christ has experienced these things for us. Man, well acquainted with grief and sorrows, stricken, smitten, and afflicted, of God, for us, judgment for our salvation. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are in awe of your grace and mercy, your steadfast love, that ultimately points us to the cross of Christ, where your justice and your love and your mercy meet in the sacrifice of your Son for us. Father, may we be those who cling to Christ, our Savior, cling to Him and the hope that comes through Him even as we walk through this life and endure suffering and tragedies and trials. Father, we're thankful that even now we can gather to worship, to remember the sacrifice of our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.